The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the last four verses from verses 16 to verse 20. Taking a look this morning at the Great Commission. The Great Commission. We've been in this series uh, titled Deeper, How Do People Grow? And uh, the title answers the question, how do people grow? They grow deeper. That's, that's the answer. So uh, you now understand the entire series. It's all right there for you. And you became a super genius in just a, a brief moment. Um, we have been looking at sort of eight dimensions or categories of our discipleship to Jesus over these last weeks, and uh, it has been a an opportunity a, an opportunity for us to just sort of slow down a little bit and think about the whole of our lives in relationship to our discipleship to Jesus. And so we, we've been sort of repeating this question because we want this to be drilled down into our hearts. We want this to get worked into the fabric of our our souls a little bit. What is a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you are by default also a disciple. You, you can't be one or the other. It's always a both and. And so as a result, all of us who've put faith in Jesus are growing in the likeness of Jesus and we are to be leading others to follow Jesus. So we have to ask a sort of secondary question then, what is discipleship? If, if, if that's what it means to be a disciple, then what is discipleship? Well, in discipleship, we walk with Jesus personally, and as a result of our walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. It's Christ in us, living through us, and to the degree that he is free to do that and unhindered by us, that is the, the depth to which we are growing in discipleship. And so that is our goal through this series, to understand what a disciple is, to understand the process of discipleship and growing in the likeness of Christ, not just the actions or just the um, you know, behaviors of Christ, but the, in the inner being that Christ in us begins to live through us, that his heart is our heart, that, that it's not just, you know, we're resisting sin, it's that we're longing for obedience, right? It's not that we're just putting on the attributes of love like a, like a costume, but that we are actually loving people from the heart because Christ is so united with us at the core. That is the process of discipleship, and that is a lifelong journey. Amen? 
Let's go ahead and read our text for today, and then we'll pray. Matthew chapter 28, we want to pick it up in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples, this is after the resurrection. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Father, right now we have just read your final instructions in person to the church, to your disciples. As has been often stated, this is not the great suggestion, this is the great commission, this is what we have been called to. And yet, Lord, I sense in my own heart the need to continually come back to this place and examine, am I living on mission for you? Is this my way of living in the world? Is this my lifestyle? As we explore that today, Father, I pray that you would call us deeper, that you would shape our hearts through understanding the word, and that that shaping would so work its way into us that it actually changes the way that we live. So God, we invite you, transform our minds, renew our thinking, and make us like your son. In the name of Jesus, amen. So today we are going to be talking about having a missional lifestyle as one of the dimensions that we must examine in our discipleship to Jesus. So that brings up the question, what is exactly a missional lifestyle? Short definition here. A missional lifestyle is a way of living that aligns our actions, attitudes, and words with the mission of God in the redemption of the world. Let me say that again. A missional lifestyle is a way of living that aligns our actions, attitudes, and words with the mission of God in the redemption of the world. Now, often when we talk about missions, we think of them as special events that are different than the rest of life. We tend to think of things like short-term mission trips, outreach weekends, social justice initiatives. And while there's nothing wrong with any of those things, they're all good, they are not the same as living on mission for God or living 
a missional lifestyle. Rather, this kind of lifestyle is a way of living as a missionary in day-to-day life. It is a way of viewing our lives through the lens that we have been sent to the location that we live in by the will of God. The reason you and I are residents in the Rogue Valley is because God has sent us here He has called us to this place. And as a result of that, we are called to this place not simply to exist and occupy space and utilize resources, but we are called to this place to live for his mission, to live on mission for him. This way of living sees God as already being active and present in the place and the time that I live. He's using the lives of his people in everyday circumstances and situations to present to the world around us life in the kingdom, to help them see what it is that they cannot see. This is not a one-off event, but it's a way of living. It's a lifestyle, and this lifestyle then becomes the framework for how the church how the people of God are to interact with a world that does not know God, a world that does not know the reality of his past, present, and future work of redemption. And we demonstrate life in his kingdom through our actions and through our attitudes, loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, advocating for justice, Engaging in spiritual warfare through prayer for our friends, our neighbors, our city. But that's not all that we do in living a missional lifestyle. It's not simply social justice work. But it is also talking about the kingdom and preaching the gospel and calling everyone to live for the kingdom, to live under the rule of King Jesus. This is, it's not simply social justice work and good deeds that we do in life, but it is that united with our proclamation of the gospel itself. It's those two things married together in the life of a believer. To have one without the other. To have preaching without the backdrop of a life that lives consistently with the values of the kingdom, makes our words feel shallow and hollow. And to have good works where we love others and demonstrate our care for the poor and social justice, in the absence of the preaching of the gospel, may care for their bodies in a temporary way, but ultimately does not show the love of God because there is no care for the eternal state. There's no care for eternity and what happens next. We have to preach the gospel. We have to do both. So we've been asking the question, because Jesus is our, our, our model for discipleship, we, we've been sort of you know, meditating on the life of Jesus and asking the question, how did Jesus model for us a missional lifestyle? How did Jesus model for us a missional lifestyle? Well, we have to remember that God 
is a missionary God. He is a missional God. The mission that we are sent on is not, in fact, our mission. It's God's mission. And it's been the mission that he's been on since before the world began. And we're given hints of, at this reality throughout the scriptures, which tell us that the Trinitarian work of God was planned before creation. In fact, all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and the, and the Holy Spirit can be viewed through the lens of the mission of God to create a people that he dwells among. That God has always been working to this end, that, that his people would be a habitation for his presence, that he would be their God and that, that we would be his people and that there would be harmony and unity between our hearts and his. That's always been the mission of God. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit then create the conditions where this mission can be accomplished. The Trinity is seen at creation, creating all things. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Spirit hovering over the waters in the act of creation, breathing life into Adam and to Eve. God creates the conditions where his mission can be accomplished. Humans are created that will bear God's image and become a part of God's kingdom. And then enters the turn in the story. Sin and an enemy and the fall. Sin and the fall of man take place and it seems in that moment that God's mission has been derailed. It seems like that's the end of it. But God acts from that very first moment. From the very moment that sin occurs, God sweeps in with reassurance that he has already taken the fall of man into account. He promises to send the offspring of Eve, note, note that, the offspring of Eve, not the offspring of Adam, this one who will be born of a woman but not necessarily born of a man, who will come and crush the head of the enemy of God who injected sin into the world and ultimately provide victory for mankind. He has prepared the Son of God to be the rescuer for mankind. He affirms this promised Son again and again and again throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And in due time, God sends His Son on this mission just as he planned to do from the foundations of the earth. The Son, Jesus, then incarnates as a human. Notice that the expectation isn't that, that mankind would just sort of figure out how God is. God comes down onto the mission field, lives among the people on the mission field, and in the Son becomes one of them that they might know who he is. The Son incarnates as a human. He lives and dies for the purpose of this mission to demonstrate what, to the world uh, what it looks like when you live in harmony with the rule of God. 
And as a result, everywhere he goes, the blind see, the lame walk, demons are torn from their strongholds. This all happens at the command of Jesus. There are evidences that even nature itself is surrendering to the authority of Jesus as the winds and the waves are stilled. And the earth shakes and trembles at the crucifixion. There is bread and fish and wine for all who sup with the Messiah, and he shows care for the poor. Even the dead are called to life at his command. And then during his teaching ministry, Jesus starts making radical statements. He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God, but he also begins to lay claim to why it is that he's there. Listen to his words from John 17, 8 in his high priestly prayer. For I gave them, talking about his disciples, the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Notice, in Jesus' perception of his own existence, he does not see himself as sort of being born accidentally in Palestine. He's not a victim to circumstance. He is not haphazardly here. He recognizes that the Father has sent him to this place and to this time to accomplish his mission. Then Jesus claims that he was sent on this mission, and even more than that, that Jesus then tells his disciples that he is sending the Holy Spirit on God's mission as well. And so in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So Jesus says, I was sent on this mission. And then while he's on that mission, he says, I'm going back to the Father, but don't worry, I'm sending somebody else on this mission. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. And to go one step further, Jesus then says that he is sending the disciples. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20, verses 21 to 22. Okay, are you guys seeing this? God the Father, the missionary God, has a mission. He creates the conditions where that mission can happen. The mission gets disrupted by the presence of an enemy and the presence of sin. So God says, don't worry, I've already taken account for that. I'm sending my son, he's going to rescue you. The rescuer comes in the son. He is sent on that mission by the father. Then he dies, is being raised from the dead, and will ascend to the father. But in his stead, he sends the Holy Spirit. Where does he send the Holy Spirit? Into the hearts of disciples. Why? Why? 
so that they might be sent on the mission of God. That they might have power from the Holy Spirit and be sent in his place. He dies and is raised from the dead to fulfill the mission of God, making it possible for those who believe to be adopted into the family of God and to become members of God's kingdom, of royal priests, people who are now members of his family, representing him in the world, scattered like seeds to the ends of the earth to represent his kingdom. So, it, it, it's God's mission. It was agreed upon before the foundations of the world. The Father sent the Son on that mission. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to empower Jesus' disciples for that mission. The disciples are then sent to make disciples who join in the mission of God and then are sent by the Spirit with the message and presence of the Son of God to the glory of God. Jesus perfectly modeled what it looks like to align yourself with the mission of God. He sets the standard for us for how to do this. He is the sent one who then becomes the sender. And here in the Great Commission, Jesus says that his disciples will keep making disciples who then go on to make disciples, who then go on to make disciples, who then go on to make disciples, who then go on to make disciples until the end of the age. That's God's mission. That's the plan of God. So let's go ahead and study then the Great Commission for ourselves. We want to see what Jesus says here. What did Jesus teach about a missional lifestyle? Today as we examine the Great Commission, we're going to be looking at it in its entirety and trying, uh, and trying not really to pull it apart too much because we need to see it as a whole. I want us to explore together what it might mean to be a group of people living a lifestyle that is obedient to the whole of the Great Commission of Jesus. Okay, so let's orient ourselves in the story, in this passage here from Matthew 28, what has been happening up to this point. Well, Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. The 11 disciples, that's 12, 12 disciples. You guys remember Jesus had 12 disciples? But one of them betrayed him and then went out and hung himself, right? And committed suicide. So now he's down to 11 disciples. So the 11 disciples, minus Judas, had encountered the resurrected Jesus multiple times by this point. Both Luke and Paul tell us that Jesus hung around and that he made special appearances over the course of 40 days to the disciples, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. And the Bible specifically says that on Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, the women that came uh, to Jesus' tomb, which was Mary, uh, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. He appeared also to Peter and to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He also appeared to the remainder of the 12 disciples, when Thomas was absent. And then he appeared again on another occasion 
to the twelve or to the eleven disciples when when uh, Thomas was present at that time. There was also an appearance to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, where he had prepared a fish over a fire for them. On another occasion, he appeared to over five hundred people at the same time. And there's also a personal appearance to his half brother, to James. And finally, after the ascension, Jesus appeared to Paul of Tarsus, the man who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. He appeared to Stephen at his martyrdom. And later, at the end of the Apostle John's life, Jesus made a personal appearance to him to give him a revelation of all that God intended to do in the future. So, after the resurrection, there are lots of appearances of Jesus. It's not just the kind of a one-off, like just at the tomb. There are multiple times. For 40 days, Jesus is meeting with his disciples again and again and again. He's giving instruction. He's teaching them. He's putting the Old Testament into context for them so they can understand how they missed that this is what would happen, that this was always the plan of God. Now, some commentators make the note that this is likely, right here, our passage today, the event where Jesus is preaching to the 500. The logic for that claim, because that's not explicitly stated here in the text, the logic then goes like this. Jesus had already convinced his disciples of the resurrection. And even doubting Thomas had his faith confirmed after the resurrection. And so by the time they make their way from Jerusalem down to Galilee, all of the apostles, the 11 disciples, they already are persuaded that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. This is probably then a larger audience than just the 11. Because it says here, that some doubted in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Who were the doubters that were present? Weren't the apostles already convinced? Not only that, but to meet with 500 people of all the appearances of Jesus, the place that allows the most space for that is an outdoor setting, this mountain that Jesus had prearranged. So during that 40-day time period, Jesus is giving instruction to the disciples and those that are gathered to help them see what is happening and to see that it was always the plan of God. And it seems that Jesus is taking the apostles on this sort of tour of places that they've already been. They were to meet Jesus in Galilee at a specific mountain that he had prearranged with them. And he reminds them of that after the resurrection. Now, that kind of seems strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus seems to be able to pop up anywhere that he wants, right? Like he can sort of appear and disappear. Why is he like travel from Jerusalem all the way to the Sea of Galilee to the mountain that I told you about? I told you I wanted to meet with you on this mountain again when he could just show up wherever they're at. What is going on there? It seems that Jesus is leading them to specific places that act as memory devices of journeys that they have already taken with him. 
they are revisiting those places to reinforce what he had already taught them in those same locations. And in this case, many scholars think it's Mount Tabor and the location of Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus is bringing to mind the revelation of who he's always been. He wants them to remember. So he says, hey, meet me where you saw my glory. Meet me where you saw. And by the time they get there, a crowd of people are like, whoa, what's going on here? And Jesus spends time giving instruction. Remember the story with Peter at the Sea of Galilee when Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? He has fish cooking on the fire. What's going on in that? Why, did, why does Jesus meet them there on the Sea of Galilee? Remember, Jesus recreates the exact same circumstances of Peter's calling to ministry. Do you remember that? How he didn't catch fish all night. And he, Jesus tells him to let down his nets and then he catches fish. And then here at the end of John's gospel, he recreates the exact same situation all over again to call Peter, who feels ashamed, back into the fight, back into vocational ministry to live his life for the king of kings, to restore him in his own sense of condemnation. So Jesus is recreating these, these moments for his disciples. He's teaching them through place and through his instruction, his expectation. So then, during that 40-day time period, Jesus is giving instruction to the disciples and to those that are gathered to help them see what's happening was always the plan of God. So Luke tells us uh, in Luke chapter 24 that he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So this idea of, of, of Jesus already having a plan for how he's going to utilize their lives is now being cemented in place through the various teachings. I have a plan to use you in the mission of God. And this idea of the forethought of God or the plan of God worked its way into the hearts of the minds and the minds of the disciples. And it worked its way so deeply that when Peter stands up to preach in Acts 2, he says to the crowd that is present, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did, with, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So when Peter goes to preach the gospel, he says, look, this is not out of control what's happening. This has always been the plan of God. Where did he get that from? He got that from the instruction of Jesus. And in our passage today, Jesus then gives the command to go, 
and the means to accomplish the command, how to make disciples. He gives the comfort of his presence, and he gives the duration for how long the command lasts. If you're a note taker, you can write these five words. Coronation, the coronation of Jesus. Command, the command of Jesus. Course, the course of Jesus. Comfort, the comfort of Jesus. And continuation, the continuation of Jesus. So, the coronation of Jesus. This is Jesus proclaims his authority to make the command that he's about to give. Then comes the command. This is the goal of his directive to the disciples. This is what he wants from them. Here's the command. Go and do for others what I did for you. Go and make disciples. Then the course, the way to accomplish that. It comes in two parts. First of all, baptize. Second of all, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Then comes the comfort. He is with us in our mission wherever we go. Behold, I am with you always. Then comes the continuation, the duration of this mission that he's called us to. How long does it last? Until the end of the age. And all of this flows from this initial statement at his coronation. He says, I'm now the king of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is he saying here? Jesus presents himself as a king assuming his kingly power or authority. And this power is something that he immediately is going to use by issuing his first edict as a king. And what is his first edict? What's his first act as a king? You ready? Here it is. It's a command. It's a command to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The word nations there is ethnos, all people groups. Go and make disciples of all nations. Notice that Jesus does not say, go and make converts, or go and get people to pray and ask me to come into their hearts. Jesus is saying that the end result of the mission that he sends the disciples on is that the people they meet should also become disciples of Jesus. Notice it's not disciples of disciples, but it's disciples of Jesus. This is an important distinction. They are to grow in the likeness of Jesus through learning about Jesus. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, you want to know how to spot a wolf? You want to understand how to spot somebody who's actually a wolf in sheep's clothing? He warned them. He says, I know that after my departure in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, 
Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, you elders, some of you who are leaders in the Ephesian church, among you elders will arise men speaking twisted things. Ready? Listen. Listen to this part. To draw away the disciples after them. One of the key ways to spot a wolf is if somebody's trying to get you to imitate them instead of imitate Jesus. Are they trying to get a following for themselves or do they want you to follow Jesus? What's their goal? Well, Jesus also makes plain the way of instruction for how it is that disciples are formed. How do you make a disciple? Well, first of all, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is a strange way to start this journey for us in the modern world. Isn't that weird to think about? I mean, it's weird to think about because we shower daily, right? So it's like I'm baptized all the time. What do I need another baptism for? Why, why a public baptism? That even seems weirder. What, what is the deal with baptism? But baptism is way more than just getting clean. The word baptize is the Greek word baptizo. Can you see the correlation? Baptizo, baptize, right? It's from a derivative of a word bapto, but they're different. And I'll illustrate that in just a moment. It means, baptizo, to dip repeatedly, to immerse, or to submerge. To cleanse by dipping, submerging, to wash and make clean with water. Another translation of the same word, to overwhelm. To overwhelm. Now, it's not to be confused with, with the root word, bapto, which is uh, also a Greek word. It is a derivative of bapto. Now, James Boyce, the, the great preacher, uh, makes this distinction clear using an example from an ancient recipe for pickles. This may seem strange at first, but it'll make sense, I promise, so hang with me. The clearest distinction, he says, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. It's a recipe for making pickles, and it's helpful because it uses both words. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, or bapto in the Greek. It should be dipped into boiling water. And then it should be baptizo, or baptized, in the vinegar solution. Now, both verbs concerning the immersing of the vegetables uh, in a solution. But the first is temporary, and the second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. So when used in the New Testament, the word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism. An example, Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Christ is saying that mere intellectual assent or agreement is not enough. 
There must be union with him, real change, like the vegetable to the pickle, Boyce says. So here's the big idea. A disciple who is making a disciple will ultimately lead them to the place where all of who they are will get pickled in Jesus. Not pickled for Jesus, that's a different issue. We could talk about that later. But it's pickled in Jesus. Through their union with him, every area of life is becoming affected with the flavor of Christ. Baptism is not a dunk and depart activity. It is a full, lifelong immersion or union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And historically, this is often done in the presence of the church because it's a way of showing the reception of the church to a new member of the body of Christ. It's like a celebration over a newborn baby. The whole family gets together for an occasion like that. And we go, oh, you're one of us. Welcome to the family. We're so glad that you're here. So baptism is this introduction. It's this immersion. It's this pickling in the life of Christ. And... The second part to making disciples, then, is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the first part requires faith on the part of that person. They have to trust Christ, follow him, put their whole lives in his hands, be pickled in Jesus. And then comes instruction that comes after that. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the second necessary thing is to teach these Baptists who are now immersed in their union with God how to live in accordance with the teaching in the life of Jesus. They will need instruction about who Jesus is and what it looks like to live as a part of his kingdom. It's not an intellectual exercise. They're just not learning facts to learn facts, to, to be able to spit scriptures at a moment's notice. That's not the goal. Rather, it's an exercise in integration. The teachings of Jesus should lead them to live as though Christ is living through their lives, because indeed he is. His heart becomes their heart. His love becomes their love. His care for the poor becomes their care for the poor. Do you see how that works? The teaching is aimed at the formation of life so that they begin to live as Christ in the world. This is, in fact, where the name Christian even comes from. Did you guys know that? At first, the disciples were referring to themselves as as people of the way, followers of the way. But then... Others began to make fun of them because they were always talking about this Jesus and following the way, the truth, the life, Jesus. And so other people in the culture around them began to poke fun at them and call them miniature Christ, you, you little Christs. And that's where the word Christian comes from. The early church said, little Christ, I like that. 
That's a, that's a great way to describe me. I like that. I want to live as a little Christ in the world. That's the idea. And so the instruction that these young disciples need is teaching them how to live as Christ in the world. Then comes the comfort. And behold, I am with you always. Okay, I'm sending you on my mission. Where I want to go, I want you to now go in my place. But I'm with you in that. I'm with you in that. You know, the whole reason that God gave the Holy Spirit is for what? That we might be witnesses. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk in Christian circles about the relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people really struggle to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And one of the things that I think is a sure way to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is get on mission for God. Step out and be a witness and you will see that the Holy Spirit is there to, to give you boldness, to present you with opportunity, to lead you and direct you when you say, God, I want to live on mission for you. I want this to be my lifestyle. Because God is with us Jesus is with us. The Spirit is with us in the mission. In the mission. Then comes the continuation. How long? Even until the end of the age. The word end is suntalia. It means completion, consummation, or end. And the word age there is aeon, which we get our word eon from. It has an in eternal implication. It's trans translated eternal multiple times. It's forever, an unbroken age, perpetuity of time. It's to the very end. That's the idea. So in the mind of Jesus, this action of making disciples by his disciples... in fulfillment of the mission of God is something that will go on and on until the completion of the eon. Until the end, till the return of Christ, his disciples are sent to make disciples who will then make disciples. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and by also teaching them how to surrender all of life to the authority and teaching of Jesus their King. And this is exactly what you see happening in the Bible. That's what happens in the book of Acts. That's what they do. They go out. They start teaching other people how to, how to live under the reign of Christ as a part of the kingdom of God. 3,000 souls get baptized, then 5,000 souls get baptized. And again and again, they go out proclaiming. They are sent out into the world, and they start training and teaching others how to live under the rule of King Jesus. The epistles are instruction for how to live as the community of God under the rule of King Jesus. It's the implications of the gospel. It's practical instruction for relationships and how to live together and how to worship together. Why? Because we're being discipled through the work of the apostles 
and through the relationships that we have within the body of Christ. Kathy made an astute observation from this text. Notice the repetition of the word all in this passage. All authority to reach all nations. Jesus will be with us always to do this work for all days. This is the Great Commission. Now, I have a few minutes here. I want to I break something down for you because I think this is helpful. There's this great quote, a problem well stated is half solved. It's usually attributed to Charles Kettering, who was the, the head of research at General Motors from 1920 to 1947. And this axiom is true for the church as well, virtually All church traditions understand the importance of the great command, the great commission given to uh, to the church by Jesus here. Virtually all branches of the church understand its importance. Go make disciples. You know what's interesting, though? I've been a pastor for 22 years, and I have asked this question across the board in multiple places. How do you make a disciple? And how do you know when you've made one so that you can go send them to do what you just did for them? How do you make a disciple? What is a disciple? How do you know when you've made one? The responses I've received have usually emphasized one aspect of the Great great Commission uh, to the diminishment of the others. Most of the time I've heard that a disciple is a follower of Jesus, And by this, those that offer that answer mean that disciples are those who follow Jesus and do so with a willing heart. It's not out of compulsion. And it seems that almost all traditions recognize that there has to be a a change of heart in the heart of man in order to be a disciple, right? But the question is, though, how do we reach the heart of man? How do people actually change? How do they actually grow? Now, each church tradition seems to look at Jesus' command as sort of hyper-focus on parts of the Great Commission rather than the whole. And as a result, each group works towards uh, towards heart change from a slightly different angle. Most church traditions want to see their people growing in the likeness of Christ. They know that that's the goal. They believe that this transformation takes place in the heart. However, the path towards heart change is approached differently. So, for instance, charismatics. Charismatics tend to focus on the part of the Great Commission that deals with Jesus' authority and his presence in the church. They seem to believe that a disciple is someone who has learned to access the authority of Jesus and to live in the awareness of his presence. And as a result, they reason, if all authority has been given to Jesus, if he's present with the church Uh, in all times, in all ages, then we make disciples by casting out demons, focusing on the sign gifts and emphasizing the authority of Jesus in heaven and on earth because, because they start with this premise. All of the emphasis in their ministries, their teaching, their staffing, their spending, these are all aimed at dynamic worship services, healing crusades, social justice outreach. They believe that doing this will show the redeeming power of Jesus by being his hands to 
to the world. They desire to reach the heart through the hands. Now, that's one wing of the church. What about the scholastic wing? What about the scholastic traditions? Well, they focus all their attention on the teaching part of the Great Commission. The part of the Great Commission that seems to stand out most in these circles is where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. A, di a disciple, therefore, is someone that attains a level of theological knowledge and proficiency with this knowledge. And under this rubric for discipleship, the goal of discipleship then is to fill the one being discipled with all the necessary knowledge of Scripture and to make them theologically proficient. Classes are offered. Seminary is encouraged. Books are purchased. And the bulk of ministry effort and expenditures go towards reaching the heart through the head. Then there are high church traditions. High church traditions focus on observances. For these followers of Jesus, the emphasis is getting people into the church through Jesus' command in the Great Commission to baptize. They take seriously the command to baptize people into God's covenant community. And as a result, they see it as crucial in the role of making disciples. Therefore, a central focus for them in teaching in staffing, in spending, therefore, goes towards elevating ritual observances and elevating church membership, confirmation classes, and fostering belonging to God's people over other aspects of the Great Commission. The goal in these environments is heart change through proximity and belonging. If you get close to the church, if you become a part of the church, your life will change. If you're close to us, it'll rub off on you. That's the idea. Then there's evangelical traditions. In evangelical traditions, there's an emphasis on multiplication. The reasoning focuses on the fact that making disciples will inevitably lead to people who obey the command to go and make more disciples until the end of the age. And though the definition of what a disciple is exactly is still unclear, they know that the church is supposed to multiply. Therefore, they throw their teaching, staffing, and financial resources at evangelism. They host training events on how to share the gospel. They sponsor big rallies and evangelistic outreaches. Disciples most often are defined as converts, people who pray a prayer or make a public dedication in some way. These are people that respond or confess faith in response to certain truths about Jesus, about his death for sins, his burial, and his resurrection. And here, they're trying to reach people through a call to follow Jesus and reach others. They believe the gospel call is what makes disciples. And from that perspective, heart, the heart change sought is belief in the tenets of Jesus' saving work. In other circles, it's more somatic or having to do with the body. They focus on the command of Jesus to make disciples or students of Jesus that imitate his life. They embody his life. It is believed that transformation takes place through spiritual disciplines. 
serving in social justice ministries, dedication to prayer, and for these more contemplative branches of Christianity, a disciple is someone who literally embodies the practices, attitudes, and lifestyle of Jesus. And as a result, their teaching, staffing, and funding all point to that as their main effort. They hold retreats, they visit monasteries, they focus on teaching how to practice living like Jesus lived, and their time, energy, and resources are focused on personal transformation, heart change through spiritual practices. And so the decisions that they make about how best to utilize staff buildings and budgets are aimed at that target as well. And still other church environments are often referred to as sending churches. And these church cultures, the emphasis is on Jesus' command to go. And these churches often have robust missions plans, spending the majority of their time and energy and resources on raising up church planters and missionaries. For these saints, discipleship is measured by whether or not you're willing to go or at least support those who go. You see, here's the deal. Each of these groups are doing what they believe is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Their faith is sincere. These, the people involved in these ministries have a sincere and deep faith. And by the grace of God, there's fruit in each of these branches of the household of God. They're living out what they believe with integrity and applying themselves to be good stewards and to take their role serious in building the kingdom of Jesus. But what if... We don't have to choose. What if instead of part of it, it's all of it? Yes, all of it. We need to preach the gospel with our actions. We need to demonstrate the love of God and the values of the kingdom and our care for the poor. We need to be adopting the attitudes and lifestyle of Jesus in our prayer and engagement and social justice and fighting spiritual oppression. Absolutely. And we need to preach the gospel and baptize people and bring them into the church and let them know what it means to follow Jesus and immerse their lives in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, here's the thing. How will they be saved if we don't preach? How can they believe if they do not hear the message that saves? And if they hear and believe and are never taught how to live in light of the kingdom, what good does it do? They need instruction for what it looks like to follow Jesus in day-to-day life. They don't just need a get-out-of-hell-free card. They need to be called. They need to be commissioned to the mission of God. We are called to adopt the mindset of being missionaries who are sent to the Rogue Valley to live for the mission of God. We have to problem solve our particular context and think about the idols of our particular culture. We're called to live a lifestyle that's marked by this mission. Praying passionately for God to save the lost in our families, our friendships, our neighbors, our community, praying for missionary endeavors throughout the world, praying that God would bring revival and awakening once again to the world. 
looking to take our part in the mission that God has called us to by caring for the poor, loving the stranger among us, standing against injustices. This is something that is to be woven into the very fabric of how we live in day-to-day life. So where are we as a church in relationship to this? You know, there's a great many things that point to health uh, in our church. People from our church have taken initiative in caring for the poor. During the holidays, I think about our Thanksgiving giveaway and the, the presents that are collected for people in foster care. Uh, we're funding kids in Uganda, feeding uh, the houseless in our community. Uh, we fundraised in response to the Alameda fire and have continued to love our neighbors by, by caring for them and contributing to other church nonprofits that are doing good work locally and abroad. Our kids are being taught to pray in the kids' wing for unreached people groups throughout the planet. They're given a, an unreached people group to pray for each, each uh, month. There are many within the body who have spontaneously, through prompting of the Holy Spirit, engaged in praying for the lost, engaged in spiritual warfare of the city, and are living on mission. Some do prayer walks throughout the city, asking God to move in places where they see and feel the destruction of, of their neighbors, the people in our city. I can think of a family from our church that budgets every month. They take a portion of their, their budget and they buy gift cards or sometimes make envelopes with cash. They stuff all those envelopes inside of the glove compartment. And then when, they, when they're driving around through the city and they spot a need, they employ their kids to be a part of being on mission for God by handing those envelopes out the window and saying, Jesus loves you. Isn't that great? That's living on mission as a part of your lifestyle. There's a family that I know of that fasts one meal a week. Then they take the money that they would have spent on that meal, they save that up. At the end of the month, they donate that to a mission that they've chosen to invest in. As a family, they are living in day-to-day life on mission for God. There's another family that I know that purposefully waits for the most strategic time to get their mail in the apartments that they live in so that they can connect with their neighbors. They're actively praying that God will open doors for the gospel with the people that they live around. Others took to heart this last winter encouragement from the teaching series, Giving the Greatest Gift, to begin getting to know their neighbors and moving the stranger to neighbor, to friend, to the family of God opening their homes and being hospitable. Many, many examples of people living on mission in our church. Having said that, though, it is our lowest scoring category in our measurement of discipleship in our church. What it revealed is that this is an area we need the most growth as a body of believers. We're well exercised in several other areas, but this is an area we could continue to nurture. Our overall score as a church demonstrates that we're moving towards being actively engaged on mission as the people of God. And so we responded to the various statements in that discipleship survey, some favorably and others not so much. The ones we struggled with most were these two statements. My prayer life reflects God's heart to see others know Christ because I'm always praying for people without faith in Jesus. The second one that we struggled with is I am able to communicate the gospel to others with ease because it is something I regularly share. 
So knowing this about ourselves helps us to think about the ways that we can nurture growth as we continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus as a body. Okay, but that's us as a church. What about you individually? Where are you? If, if we use the same five-point scale, I'm going to give you just the point one here. If you're, if you're a one, you're oblivious to the fact that God has even called you to live on mission. You just didn't even know that it was a thing. It's, it's not that you're trying to be ignorant. It's that you did not know, right? You're oblivious to it. A two is somebody who is passively engaged. That is, I have a compartmentalized life. I have my church time and then the rest of my life. And, and, and I engage in mission whenever it's organized by somebody else. Whenever the church puts something together, I, yeah, I'll, I'll participate or I'll write a check or I'll do something like that. Then there's those that are actively engaged. These are our threes. In obedience to the Great Commission, I am praying for the lost. I'm serving my community. I'm sharing my faith when I feel prompted by internal unction or by the Holy Spirit. Then there's our level fours. These are people who are intentionally engaged. Not just actively engaged, they've got a plan. I'm actively praying that God will show me how to use my life for his mission. I've got a plan. I've identified a need. I know how I can meet that need and be on mission for God. I've structured my life around that. And then there's people who are exactly perfectly like Jesus. They're perfectly consistent. Their prayer life, actions, and deeds demonstrate a lifestyle focused of focused concern for God's mission to seek and serve and save the lost. Listen, nobody's a five. But there are some fours in us. There are some threes. There's some twos and there's some ones. No matter where you find yourself on that scale today, the invitation is to go deeper. The invitation is to go deeper. We are called to be missionaries, living on mission for God. Okay, so how can we grow a missional lifestyle? Five things. Take a picture. I'm going to go through them quick. Agree with God that he's called you to live as a missionary sent to the world. Pray for opportunity and for boldness. Trust me, if you ask God to give you opportunities to live on mission, he will meet you in that. All of a sudden, you'll see mission all around you. I promise you that. Earn the right to be heard in relationships. Set the intention to build genuine friendships where you can authentically serve and share the gospel with others. Number four, prepare by being a disciple of Jesus yourself. Number five, make strategic moves to leverage the location and vocation that God has sent you to. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this moment. Okay, how can we help each other grow as a community? Here's another thing for you to take a picture of. This is what we got to do as a church. You ready? Build a go, be, tell, and disciple culture in our church instead of a come, see, listen, and attend culture. That's the kind of church community that we have. We have to have. We want to be a go, be, tell, and disciple culture instead of a come, see, listen, and attend culture. Number two, we need to utilize our gifts, our affinities, the things that we love, our creativity to exemplify the love of Christ in service and the message of the gospel with our words. 
using what God's given us to present the gospel to the world. And thirdly, we need to invite others to come along. When there's an opportunity to serve our city, love a neighbor, share the gospel, bring somebody along with you. It could be your family. It could be your small group. It could be your friends. But take somebody with you to be on mission for God. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. They continued with that model all the way through the rest of the New Testament. Go together. This is a we project, not an I project. No one gets to be a cheerleader. Everybody's in the game. That's how it works.